Well, good morning, church. Uh, Back when I was in high school, this older couple uh, started going to the same church I was attending. And uh, the the husband of that couple, the man in that couple, his, his name was Albert Percy. And I met Albert one day after worship, and we were visiting and talking, and somehow or another in that conversation, uh, we, we just kind of figured out that we shared the same birthday, October 4th. It's just that Albert happened to be born 70 years before I had been born. And that kind of just small piece of, of coincidence became the foundation for what was a really important friendship in my life. Uh, Albert invited me over pretty often, and I wasn't always able to go over and visit with him, but when, when I had that ability and that opportunity, I would take it. We would sit together. He, he always baked me something fresh before I came over, which was part of the reason I wanted to be there. But the real reason I wanted to be there was, was the way we were going to share stories. And Albert had all kinds of, of photo books, he, he loved pictures, and so he had all of these albums that he would bring out and, and hand over to me at the, at the kitchen dinner table there, and he would just start to tell me stories, and he was a great storyteller. And so I'd be turning pages, looking at different black and white photos of him and his wife and his kids and the experiences they'd have, and I, I would just feel like I was there, and I couldn't get enough of these stories that Elbert would, would share with me about the good old days. He had done all kinds of different things, different jobs, he'd lived different places, uh, he, he had been serving in the military for, for a number of years in his life, and so he had all kinds of memories that he wanted to share with someone, and I, and I wanted to, to experience those memories with him. I remember one particular afternoon where I brought up the fact that I was kind of wrestling with what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I was kind of entering into my senior year in high school, and we, we had talked about you know, my, my future and, and the different plans or hopes that I might have for it. And I was getting to the place through a number of experiences where I thought my dad was a preacher. I kind of thought maybe God was calling me to be a preacher. My parents had told me, you know, you don't just kind of fall into that. You need to feel like you're called into that. I didn't exactly know what that meant. And so I was, I was just kind of opening my heart up and talking about all of that with Albert. And we talked about it before, but he'd always been careful to just let me think out loud. But this particular afternoon, he went into his bedroom and he came out with a, a photo album that he'd never shown me before. It was smaller than the rest, uh, but he handed it over and and told me to open it up, and I started to open up, and I started to see pictures of Albert in these nice three-piece suits, and holding a Bible, and standing in front of a, of a church building, and, and I saw him in pictures where he had performed weddings, and I saw pictures where he had performed funerals, and, and I gradually started to realize that Albert had never told me before that on top of all of the other jobs he'd had in his life, he had also found a way to be a preacher, and, and he started to just talk with me about what that had meant to him, the impact that it had, had on, his, on his life, on his, his spiritual life, and how, how he knew that it was the best decision he'd ever made. And he said, you know, I, I got to be honest with you, Jared, it's, it's not always easy, but it, it was always good. 
And I, I closed the photo album and I gave it back to him. And I, I kept thinking about it and I kept praying about it. And I realized that even though he wasn't going to push me, even though he wasn't going to tell me what I needed to do, uh, he was trying to share with me the importance of, of what ministry had meant in his life and what he hoped it could mean in my life as well. Well, at our next shared birthday, uh, he turned 87 and I turned 17. And that, that year wasn't easy on Albert. And as the months passed, it was obvious to, to all of us in his life that he wasn't feeling well. You know, I'd, I'd come over to visit and he wouldn't be able to, to have something ready for us to eat. And there were times that he, he wasn't even able really to stay awake the entire time I was there. And, and he just seemed less and less like himself. And he got to where he, he, he had to have a, a nurse come in and, and watch over him and take care of him. And then pretty soon, his wife decided that it was going to need to be a, a whole group of hospice nurses who were going to take care of Albert. And so we all had a sense that he didn't have a lot of time left. And I remember when I got the phone call from his wife, and she said, the, the nurses are telling me that he just he may just have a few hours, and I know how much it would mean to him for you to come visit. So if, if you could come visit, please do that. And so I I did. I went over and I walked into Albert's bedroom and it was all dark except for a bedside lamp. And he was propped up in his bed, all these pillows behind him and his skin was was pale and his eyes were closed. And I, I sat down next to his bed and I reached out and I took his hand and I just talked with him. And, and he didn't respond to anything I was saying I talked with him about the times that we'd shared together. I talked with him about how much I loved getting to know him, how much I loved being able to be his friend. I, I sang a hymn over him, his favorite song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. I said a prayer over him, and then I, I got up to go. I didn't, I didn't know what else to do. And right when I was about to step outside of his bedroom, he drew in a sharp breath and he called my name out. It was softly, but it was clear. And so I walked back to his bed. He reached his hand out to me. He opened his eyes and he looked right at me and he said, Jared, I believe that God is calling you to become a preacher, but it's, it's hard and there'll be times of discouragement and I just need you to promise me that you'll keep going, that you'll keep fighting, that you won't ever give up and you'll never give in. And before I had any ability to respond to him, he closed his eyes, he let go of my hand, and he just kind of laid back in his bed. And I waited to see if he was going to say anything else. He didn't. And so I got up to leave. And an hour later, I got a phone call from his wife, and she said, I wasn't in the room. I don't know what the two of you talked about, but I just need you to know that the words Albert spoke to you are the last words he said to anybody. He's gone. Now, when you know somebody is speaking to you, and you know that they're the last words they're going to speak, you listen to those words in a different way than you listen to any other kinds of words that you're ever going to hear, right? They, they stay with you. They, they forever find a home in your heart. 
Now, we're reaching a place in this journey through John's gospel, the story that John's telling us, where we're entering into the last week of Jesus' earthly life. Time is, without a doubt, running short. Jesus knows this. And John, all these years after Jesus' life, as he sits down to write the story, he knows it. And so he wants to kind of help us realize that everything that happens, starting in John 13 and going throughout the rest of the gospel, it's happening while the clock is running out. Jesus is getting closer and closer to the cross, and so everything that's going to take place, it's, it's happening in the last week of Jesus' life. It's some of the last words he's ever going to speak. It's some of the last things he's ever going to do. And, and John wants to, to wake us up to that fact. And, and as much as he wants us to pay close attention to everything Jesus says throughout his gospel, to listen to everything Jesus says throughout the entire story, he especially wants us to realize that Jesus has some decisions to make here because the cross is getting closer with each passing moment. He knows it's going to be incredibly difficult for him to deal with. He also knows it's going to be incredibly difficult for his followers to understand, for them to to bear up under, and, and he knows that they're going to have all kinds of questions, and, and they're going to struggle, and, and he at the same time knows that there's been things he's been trying to teach them, there's things he's been trying to show them that they're just, at this point, they haven't, they haven't gotten it yet, they don't understand it, they don't see it as clearly as Jesus wants them to, and so he's going to try again. All of the major things that have happened already in his life and his ministry that he needs them to really understand as a part of what he's calling them into. He's going to find a way to draw their attention back to that place. And John wants our attention focused in that same way, with that same intensity. It's the last week of Jesus' life. Everything he does matters somehow even more. Everything he says matters somehow even more. We want to make sure we understand what's at stake. If you've got a Bible, open up to John chapter 13. We'll start reading together in verse 1. I know this is, for some of us, a really familiar story, but I want us to pay attention to it with that background knowledge that this is the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly life, and this is what he chooses to do. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, no, Peter said, you don't know me. I won't understand later. No, I'm kidding. No, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, look, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, you don't get it. Right? Those who, who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body's clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. 
for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said that not everyone was clean. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Okay, so for, for the past three years, leading up to this last week of Jesus' life, for the past three years, the, the followers who are gathered together in that room, they have witnessed some pretty amazing things precisely because they have followed Jesus. Right? They've, they've seen water turned into wine. Uh, they have seen a royal official's son who was fighting a deadly disease suddenly be healed. Uh, they, they have watched Jesus restore the, the legs and the life of a crippled man. They watched him feed thousands of hungry people with more fish and bread than they could possibly eat. They watched him restore the sight of a man who was born blind. And then they watched him give life back to a man who'd been dead for four days and then give that man back to his grieving family. All of that and more they have witnessed over Jesus' last three years of ministry. They have, they have seen some pretty amazing things. And in, in seeing all that... They have started to see who Jesus really is, right? He's, he's not just a gifted teacher. He's not just some special servant that, that God has, has anointed with insight and ability to lead. He's all of that, but he's more than that. They've come to realize that he's the light of the world, that he's the bread of life, that he's the true source of living water, that he's the good shepherd, that that he is the son of God. They don't understand all of it, but they've come to believe it. And because of John, we are invited into that same place, into that room with all of these gathered followers, these disciples. And just like them, if we've been following Jesus, we've seen some pretty amazing things ourselves. Just like them, if we've come to believe we, we don't just believe that he's a, a good man with some great ideas. We believe that he's far more than just an ordinary man. He is the son of God. And we don't fully understand what all that means, but we believe it. And, and as we come to this story, with all of that authority, the, the moral power that Jesus brings into the moment because of, of his example, we watch what takes place. And, and if you're anything like me, you've, you've heard this story Pretty often, at least during, during you know, Sunday school, and so you've, you have some, some memories of hearing the story. You might even have some flannel graph memories or, you know, paintings. Uh, you may have seen, you know, stained glass windows or, or you know, you've, you may have seen movies where this all gets acted out. And because I have that kind of history with it, I'll just tell you, basically when I read this story, it's like my mind goes into this mode of imagining kind of this dramatic, formal Shakespearean play that's unfolding. There's nothing warm or natural about it, right? It's like they're sitting there having a meal and Jesus clears his throat so the spotlight from the balcony will, will go ahead and shine on him and he stands up formally and he takes off his outer cloak and then he takes this towel that's as white as snow and he ties it around his waist and then he goes to the disciple next to him and he, he lifts up this dirty, grimy, 
foot and he just holds it up just enough for it to get into the spotlight so the audience can see what's happening and he starts to, to clean it. He takes that foot and he puts it into this, this wooden basin of cool, clear water and he washes the foot, he washes the other foot, he does it all the all the disciples, right, until he gets to Peter who's been watching this happen and he's getting agitated and frustrated because he's convinced that what Jesus is doing, it needs to be done. I mean, they all have dirty feet, but Jesus shouldn't be the one who's doing it. Right? It's, it's beneath him. That's how Peter's feeling. It's, it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. It's awkward. They need to find somebody else to do this. And, and Jesus says, no, Peter, you're confused. You're not understanding what's happening here, and you need to let me do this. You need to let me serve you. You need to let me wash your feet. And Peter, no, 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 no. And then Jesus says, well, if you don't let me serve you, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you're not going to have any part with me. You're not going to have any connection with me. And then Peter goes, as he always does, to the other extreme and says, then give me a bath. And Jesus says, I'm not doing that. That's not what's happening here. You don't need a bath. I'm doing what you need. You don't need a bath. You need me to clean your feet, to wash your feet, and you, you need to let me do it. And so he does, and then he, he finishes, he goes back to the head of the table, and he you know, ceremoniously takes that towel off, and he, he puts on his outer cloak, he sits down, and then he gives this speech, and he says, you know, you've watched me do this, you've, you've seen how I've served you in this moment, and you now need to imitate my example, right? I've given you something, a model, that you need to do the same way that I have done it for you. Here's the deal. If we turn this into some kind of formal, detached scene, if, we, if we're not able to connect it to the warmth of the humanity of Jesus and the relationship that he has with his closest followers and friends, if, if we're not careful, we turn it into something that, that's kind of exceptional Right? And it's, it's like it happened once. It was, it was to make a point, and then Jesus stopped. It, it's, it's almost like it's just this episode in Jesus' ministry. We don't realize what Jesus is actually trying to help his followers, and by extension, right, not just then, his followers now, what he's wanting us to understand. And it's why Jesus keeps asking, do you understand? Right? And Peter makes it clear he doesn't. And Peter's a good surrogate for us as an audience member to say, you know what, we, we may not understand it. So what is it that you want us to see, Jesus? And, and for years, I've really wrestled with this. I have consistently treated this story like it's some kind of exceptional act that Jesus performs once to show his followers the importance of, of serving. I'm, I'm tempted to see this story as a symbolic gesture where Jesus kind of steps out of his, his role of honor and he does this this thing that he wants them to notice, but then as soon as he's done, he takes that place of honor back, right? That place of, of being their leader and their, their Lord and their teacher. It, it's almost like I view this as, you know how when you get around the holidays, celebrities show up at soup kitchens for photo ops? That's almost how I kind of see what's going on here. Now, that, that can't be the right way to read this story. Jesus isn't some celebrity trying to get a photo op. He, he's, he's not interested in that at all. And yet, for some reason, that's kind of the posture of my heart and my spirit as I read it. 
But as I've thought about it this week, and as I've prayed about it, and as I've wrestled with it, I've, I've come to realize that this isn't some episode of, of Jesus performing this ritual, you know, lesson. This is intended, this moment where he draws everyone's attention, it's intended to be a kind of window into his everyday experience, right? It, it's it's insight into what Jesus is going through every moment that he's not at the right hand of the throne of God, but he's chosen to be on the face of this earth living for the sake of other people. In other words, Jesus doesn't wash his disciples' feet to make a point. It is the point. It's not some spiritual stunt that he's pulling. It's, it's not a memorable object lesson, though it is. Jesus isn't temporarily pretending to be someone or something he's not. He isn't behaving out of character. He's clearly defining his character. He's revealing his true nature. He is giving us a clear sense of who God is in relationship to us. God is willing to take on the form of a human being and not just save us, but save us by serving us. That's who God has chosen to be for us. That's who God has chosen to be to us. It's not just something he does. It is his character. It's who he is. Jesus isn't interrupting the Last Supper with a life lesson. He's trying his best to show us what his life is for. How he has committed to spend every waking moment of his life. And more than that, Jesus wants us to understand if it's not an exception for him, then as his followers, we don't have these these limited moments in our lives that are exceptions where we might decide we're going to serve if enough people notice it or if we can teach other people, you know, the importance of being a servant. No, Jesus says, if this is what I've dedicated every waking moment of my life to and you're going to follow me, then I'm asking you to dedicate every waking moment of your life to helping save other people by serving them. That is the form that this saving grace takes. Jesus isn't only serving us because we need it. right? Jesus isn't only serving us because we need help. He's also serving us to show us how we can help save others by serving them. And I don't know how else to say it where we can grasp how tempted we are to severely limit how much of our life is dedicated to quiet acts of service in Jesus' name and that quiet acts of service in Jesus' name is the hope of the world. Or at least I'll have to confess that I struggle to trust that that's true. Right? That, that our part of, of getting to to help God, partner with God in saving the world and tells us rolling up our sleeves and doing what we can to help meet the needs of other people regardless of how insignificant or, or inconvenient or small or simple that form of service might take. This is what, what Jesus, I think, is trying to get at when he's talking to Peter, right? He wants Peter to understand, look, 
you think I'm serving you. You think I'm washing your feet because you have dirty feet and that's the end of it. Like I'm, I'm doing something you need. You don't want me to be the one doing it. You'd rather have somebody else doing it. But, but Peter, this is what you need. Not only to have your dirty feet washed, you need to watch how I do it. You need to understand why I'm doing it because it's only in, in seeing how Jesus does it and understanding why Jesus does it that we're going to actually get to experience the kind of journey of being saved that Jesus wants us to get to experience alongside of him. Right? It's, it's only if Peter figures out after this moment how to dedicate the rest of his life to serving in the same self-giving way for the same self-sacrificing motivation. If he finds a way to do that, he's going to experience every single day and every moment where he serves like that, he's going to figure out what it feels like to become more and more like Jesus, which is another way of saying he's going to get to become more and more every day someone who experiences what it feels like to be saved. Saved from who he once was into who Jesus says he can be. We We need our feet washed, but we don't only need our feet washed. We need to learn how to wash other people's feet in the same way and for the same reasons that Jesus serves us. And somehow in in that experience, in, in the experience of helping to save somebody else, we we realize in deeper ways how we're still experiencing, how we're being saved. And if we, try to, if we try to cut off that growth process, right, if we, if we try to say, no, I'd rather just be the one who receives it. I'd rather just be the one who, who has Jesus serving me, and I'll be thankful for it. I'll be grateful for it. I'll allow it to happen. But, you know, I've got a lot of other things going on in my life, and I don't think that I can dedicate the rest of my life to serving the way Jesus has served me. If we make that decision, we have no idea the experience of salvation that we are opting out of because we have such a difficult time trusting that Jesus really knows what he's talking about. When we choose to follow Jesus, we choose to make his way of life our way of life. And it's a way of life that faithfully meets the needs of others. Not once, not only when it's convenient, not only when it's what we want to do, not only when people are around to see us. You know, we don't only serve when people can, can watch us when there's an audience and, and we're going to impress them with our spiritual maturity because we're willing to serve in front of them in ways that they're not really willing to serve themselves. Brothers and sisters, When we promise that we want to be like Jesus, this is what it looks like. We serve because we've promised to serve. Trusting that in serving, we get to experience something that only happens in that interaction. Something that only takes place in that kind of relating to somebody else who stands in need. There are times when I'm afraid that we we fail to talk enough about how central quiet acts of service are to our Christian calling. I I fear at times that we tend to want to talk more about doing amazing things for Jesus' glory rather than we talk about picking up a basin and a towel in Jesus' name. That's a problem. Because when we look at our world... We look at all the ways that we know that it's struggling and and all the ways that it's broken. right? In the face right now in this moment where we're dealing with 
at very least, a global worldwide pandemic and a contentious election season, right? When we are hyper aware of all the things that need fixing, we reach for all kinds of tools. I'm afraid we, we want to reach for the flashiest tools available to us. And Jesus says, when you get to that place where you look at the world and you see all the brokenness and you see the problems, you just need two tools, a basin and a towel. And do we trust that he knows what he's talking about? That we save the world by serving the people in it. Man, that's a struggle for me. You know, I, I just, I look at it and I think those tools are inadequate to the task. But in those moments, that's me deciding I know better than Jesus does what actually works and what doesn't. You know, when we drive someone to a doctor's appointment, someone who can't drive themselves, nobody else is around. Right? That's, that's when we're trusting Jesus and we're answering his call to pick up a basin and a towel. When we take the time and, and we invest the thoughtfulness to kind of put together a care package for someone and leave it on their front porch, just so they'll know that we're, we're thinking about them, that we, we care about them. That's when we're trusting Jesus. We're trusting Jesus enough to answer this call he has for us to pick up a basin and a towel. You know, when, when we check in on someone who, who can't leave their house, someone who's isolated, who's been alone because of their health, and, and we find a way to help them not feel so alone, it's, it's then that we're trusting Jesus and this, this calling that he has for us to pick up a basin and a towel. Every time, brothers and sisters, we do something that's simple, basic, but we know that it meets, meets the, the real need of somebody else, right? We know that it's going to bless them. It's going to help them. Every time we do that, we're proving to, to everyone in our lives that we trust that Jesus knows what he's talking about and that we want to faithfully answer his call for us to, to pick up a basin and a towel. The more we answer Christ's call, the more we serve others the way that Jesus has served us, the more we get to experience what it feels like to be saved. Saved from who we once were into who Jesus says we can be. When Albert Percy told me all those years ago that God was calling me, uh, to become a preacher. I was 17 years old. And I think what I thought he was telling me is that God was asking me to go to a school and, and develop you know, enough skills so that I could write and deliver eloquent sermons from a stage. That's not what Albert was telling me. What Albert was telling me with the last words of his life is that I needed to dedicate my life to quiet acts of service for others. And that is not a calling that's unique to me. It is our calling. It is your calling. Whatever form it takes, whatever relationship it takes place in, God is calling us to look at our broken world, to look at people in our world who stand in great need of all kinds of, of things. 
that when we find this desire, this longing in our heart to try to fix what's broken, to try to bring healing to those who are broken, that before we get ahead of ourselves and before we have some kind of imagination of what that future looks like and everybody seeing us and everybody noticing and everybody thanking us, do we have the courage to trust that Jesus is right when he says that there's two tools we need to join God in fixing what's broken? It's a basin and a towel. It's not a stunt. It's, it's not some exception. It's not us pretending to be someone or something we're not. And it's not just something we do from time to time, brothers and sisters. It's who we are. Because it's who Jesus is. The one who constantly is trying to save us by serving us. And we need to find the obedience and the trust to be those people alongside of him. We're going to sing together now. And as, as Dan comes to the stage, I just want to encourage you. You're going to have moments this week when you have a chance to follow through on a quiet act of service. Please don't pass it by because it's in that moment when you follow through on carrying out a quiet act of service that you're going to encounter Jesus in a new way, in an unexpected way, and that encounter will make you more like him. And you're going to discover in, in a brand new way what it means to be someone who is always experiencing what it means to be saved. Let's stand and sing together now.